Lord, we ask that you would uh, grace us this morning with clear, clear words for us, uh, that each one of us would open our hearts, our minds, our spirits to your word to us today. Uh, thank you for the gift of story, for the parables you give us. Um, thank you for the gift of one another and how we help one another live into those stories. So uh, speak to us, speak through me by your grace this morning. Amen. So some of you know in my day job, I'm an ethicist. Um, this is a, a theological ethicist, to be more exact. And, uh, you know, a lot of the questions that come up that are so-called ethical problems often uh, seem like deep quandaries, or um, they often are framed in things like, uh, well, in the areas that I teach in, I teach uh, medical ethics, bioethics, I teach sexual ethics. So you get questions like, um, well, how do we frame something like whether you terminate a pregnancy? Well, we frame that as things like, well, what's the status of the fetus? Right? That would be one side, would be kind of focused on that, while the other side focuses on the woman or the girl, right? What's her status? Is she uh, morally impure for choosing such a thing or even thinking about such a thing? Uh, how would we characterize her? Um, a lot of questions about kind of who that thing is. How do I determine their value, their position? How do I describe them? Um, you can also see this in areas that I teach in terms of bioethics around the end of life, right? Or around the diminishment of capacity of people, or of people born with very little capacity. So we ask questions like, does someone still count as a person when they can no longer remember who or whose they are? Or am I really still a person at that point in time? And then that will help me determine how I treat this person or even how I want to be treated when I reach that point in my life. So uh, in sexual ethics, this comes across in other ways, right? We spend a lot of time in the church currently worrying about what they happen to think about certain positions around sexuality. So we decide what those people who have certain positions, usually the opposite of ours, what they are. And we worry about characterizing them, or we focus on characterizing them. You might see some of this on Facebook or social media on occasion, <laughs> where you occasionally see people making statements about certain people because of their theological, political, social, ideological commitments on occasion. The parable that we're going to read today um, has been one that, for me, has been sort of earth-shattering in the ways that it cuts through a lot of my own discipline, a lot of the ways that ethicists are trained to think, a lot of the ways we're trained to sort of parse things, the ways we're trained to specialize in uh, the words like, well, it depends, it's all kind of gray. And this is supposed to be, you know, really astute. Like, you have to go to a lot of school to come to this kind of lack of clarity. <laughs> so um, we're going to look at a text uh, from Luke 10. It's obviously, this is one of Jesus, if not the most famous parable he tells. It is certainly one of the most famous. Um, maybe we'll rewrite the title by the end. That can be something you can think about, whether we might want to retitle this in something 
that might help us grasp what Jesus is after here. Um, but I do want to place it a little bit in the Gospel of Luke. Um, so curiously, for what Jesus is going to talk about, this comes after some very interesting interactions in the Gospel of Luke. So Jesus has actually um, passed through or wants to pass through part of Samaria on his way to Jerusalem. So in Luke's Gospel at this point, Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. He is on the long road home, right? This is going to be the big showdown. He's starting to reveal the whole, like, lose your life to gain it thing. The disciples are like, what? Uh, they're not really catching on to that. They've been given tremendous power to heal and raise the dead. This is a very exciting time in Luke. But there's this weird interaction where Jesus goes through, or, well, interesting interaction, where Jesus wants to pass through Samaria, and he apparently actually wants to stay there. He wants to seek accommodation in Samaria on his way through to Jerusalem. Now, it wasn't uncommon for pilgrims to go through Samaria on their way to Jerusalem, but normally they wouldn't stay there because they don't really think the Samaritans are a very pure uh, theologically or even potentially sort of morally people. There's a lot of contentiousness. We'll talk about that between Jews and Samaritans. So they refuse to accommodate the disciples and Jesus. Does anyone remember what James and John decide would be a good reaction to this? It's a great line. Think of Elijah and Mount Carmel. Shall we call down, do you remember this? Fire. Shall we call down fire to consume them? He's the, that's their response. Uh, you gotta love James and John, right? Um, so they think, well, this is a good response to a lack of hospitality, right? Um, and Jesus <laughs> says, no. But, he, but Jesus actually does go on to warn, woe to you, charism, woe to you, Bethsaida. If the things that had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah would have been, that, that were done in you, they would have repented and you haven't. So he does actually make these statements, of, but they're actually words instead of actually sending down fire and consuming them. Now, the reason that that's important is that Luke sets this up so that we, oh, and, and then Jesus goes on and he talks to the disciples and he says to them right before this, so isn't it great that God has given this gift to infants and to those who aren't wise or intelligent? Every time I read that, I'm thinking if I'm a disciple, I'm like, hmm, <laughs> damned with faint print. Yeah, how do you, I didn't understand. So there's this, these very complex social and religious relationships and Jesus says, you know what you really need to rejoice in, disciples, is not that you can do these really great things, but that you've been given this gift, that your names are written in heaven, right? That God has and will befriend you, has given you these gifts to share with others. That's what you should really be excited about. And then we get this parable. So there's complex social, political, theological, ideological relationships into which Jesus plops this little parable. So, um, so let's take it from the top, and this will be somewhat interactive, right? So a legal expert or lawyer stood, stands up to test Jesus. Now, right here, who's the legal expert within this context? What are they an expert in? What legal, what, what does this mean, legal expert? In Torah, right? This is a 
This is someone who's a, let's just say, kind of more like me, right? This is their professional job to know Torah, to explicate how this matters for ordinary life. This is a painfully close parable for those of us who do this for a living, Josh. Um, <laughs> so, so they stand up to test Jesus, and he says, teacher, rabbi, what must I do to gain eternal life? Now, I like this because, you know, I've sojourned among, once I left uh, certain circles, I sojourned around evangelicals, and I learned that you, uh, you have a certain answer to this question if you sojourn among a certain group of, say, evangelically-type Christians, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What would people say? Accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Or my favorite one is, there's nothing you can do, right? It's all grace. Uh, now, interestingly, Jesus doesn't say that. In this case, he says, well, what do you already know? What's already clear to you in the law, in Torah? And the man responds, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your being, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Does anyone know what two texts he's putting together? What books? Do you remember what two books? He's actually drawing from two different Torah scrolls here. Does anyone remember what they are? The slow test. Deuteronomy and Leviticus, right? So he's putting these together, which was a common rabbinic response. So Jesus and this lawyer are playing at rabbinics. This is what rabbis and teachers and students would do. Um, this would not be uncommon for Jesus to say, what do you, how do you read this? And rabbis would chat about this sort of thing. Um, now, in some ways, uh, and Jesus says to him, that's awesome. That's exactly right. You knew the answer. You know what you need to do. Now go do it. But you see, he may have been trained in ethics because he says, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. Uh... Let's parse this a little more carefully. Who is my neighbor? Because, you know, you'd hate to love somebody, and then it turns out, <laughs> nah, they weren't neighbor status. So Jesus, of course, in Jesus' fashion, tells a story. A man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, you always go down from Jerusalem, right, because Jerusalem's on a, a hill, not a very big hill, I just have to say, by our standards, but by Jerusalem, by Israel standards, it's on a hill. Um, this was, most scholars would say, this, this strip was pretty famous for actually being a pretty dangerous strip of land to be on. So they're coming from the center of uh, Jewish worship, the center of political life, the center of economic life, and they're traveling back to Jericho. And he encounters thieves who stripped him naked, beat him up, and left him near death. I'll resist the Monty Python allusions there, for those of you who know them. Now, it just so happened that a priest was also going down the same road. When he saw the injured man, he crossed over to the other side of the road and went on his way. So priests, who knows what priests were in this time? What was sort of their job? Care, yeah, 
Yeah, so they, they, they did the actual sacrifices. They went through the rituals. They were the person actually like officiating, making things happen, running through the liturgy, right? These are, this is the guy. Um, now, what's the verb? Notice some verbs here. So what are the verbs that describe his response? What are the verbs for this part of the story? What is the priest's actions or verbiage? Verbs. He saw and crossed over to the other side and went on his way. When he saw, uh, so now you have likewise a Levite came by that spot. What are the, what are the verbs here? Saw, saw crossed, over. crossed over to the other side and went on his way. Now, if I'm listening to this as a Jew, you might imagine, so Jesus is sort of bagged on the priest. Now, the Levite has a different sort of job. Do you remember what the Levites were supposed to do? They're sort of like the misties of the... Um, <laughs> in this way, right? The misty, what do you do for Sunday mornings? Put together the order of service. Put together the order of service. And you do some other stuff, right? Like you even did it today. What do you? You delegate, you pick, up, you pick up, you make sure everything happens. So Misty actually does a lot of the making sure that other things happen. Everything that needs to happen logistically, things that need to be in place for us to have worship. So Levites were like the Misties of the ancient world. You can remember that. That'll be a classic, right? But they, they were helping facilitate and make sure worship happened. And uh, they weren't actually offering the sacrifices, but they did everything to lay the groundwork to make sure the temple or synagogue was ready for that. So they see and they pass by. Now, Jesus has sort of bagged on the priest, bagged on the Levite. If I'm a good Jew, who might you think is going to be the hero of the story? Uh, oh, you might hope for the legal expert. Yeah, the scribe, like, cha-ching, right? Um, what if I'm just like an ordinary Jew? What might I be hoping? Who do I hope is kind of the star of this parable? An ordinary, an, an ordinary Jew, right? You think, hey, that would be like a great punchline, wouldn't it? Because it would really get at the priest. Like, he's gone after the priest. He's gone after the Levites. It would be great if it's like, and then this layperson comes along. But Jesus, of course, in equal opportunity offender, uh, picks someone else. So a Samaritan who was on a journey, now interestingly, right, uh, we don't get that same thing with the Levite and the priest, right? If I'm on a journey, I'm not necessarily, why is the Samaritan not coming from worship? Because they worship on a different mountain. The Samaritans understood theologically that, uh, and there's some reason for this, by the way, they didn't just make this up, there's some stuff in Torah that would make you think that Mount Gerizim is where you're supposed to worship, Samaritans considered themselves descendants of uh, Judah, right? Sorry, blanking on that for a brief moment. Um, they sort of have their own story of their importance and their ancestry and their importance in the salvation story. Um, and many of you know sort of what were the relationships between Samaritans and Jews. They were hostile, um, sometimes even violent. Um, so, for example, if I am passing through Samaritan, 
Samaria on my way to Jerusalem, I would sometimes be subject to heckling if I were a Jew by Samaritans. It was known that they would sort of mock, right? Because they're so stupid. They're worshiping in the wrong place, Jerusalem, not in Mount Gerizim, where we know. Uh, there was also something else about Samaritans. What's their ancestry? Why was this? For Samaritans, they were claiming a different ancestry, but for many Jews, what did they see in, when they looked at a Samaritan? Mixed, mixed ancestry of Gentile and Jewish, as if Jews were pure. If you read the Old Testament, that's problematic too, but we'll get, right? They were considered sort of mixed or impure. So they're impure theologically. They're sort of impure in terms of their ancestry. They've continued in these practices that aren't really right. Um, they, they are mistaken. And interestingly, right, Jesus uh, also thinks they're mistaken. If you read the Gospel of John, right, he sort of corrects the woman at the well, like, well, yeah, you know, it's not really Mount Gerizim. But... Uh, but this is who Jesus picks, a Samaritan. Now keep in mind, of course, these are the people that James and John just thought, you know, we could probably call down fire on these people and consume them. That gives you an indication of how they're thought of, even by disciples of Jesus. Um, and even Jesus, of course, has also said, you know, some of them are not so smart to send me on my way and not accommodate me in their land. And yet this is who he makes the sort of hero, so to speak, of the story. So a Samaritan on a journey came to where the man was. Now, by the way, oh, and he, now what are the, what's the first verb here? Saw. Well, yeah, here it shifts, right? First it's he went near him, right? Isn't that what it says? When he came to where the man was, he saw him and was moved with compassion. Is that, wait, did I get that? Okay. Um, so when they're seeing, they all see, right? All three of these men see. Just for a moment, what are they seeing when they're seeing something? They're seeing a person, but what about, and what about that person? What, what do we know from the story? What do they look like? Injured. What is it? Almost dead. So you're not, they could actually pass for dead, so to speak. That's where the Monty Python thing comes in for me. Um, but they're, they're so beaten. Now, if they're beaten, what else are they? Bloodied. So stripped naked, right, which was also potentially a source of shame of the person who sees the nakedness in this culture. So the Samaritan, the Levite, and the priest all see the same thing presumably in some ways, right? But here's where the verbs begin to shift. So the Samaritan sees, and what is he? He goes to him. What else? He's moved with compassion. Does anyone know this great Greek word, James? Do you remember what this word is for compassion? I know, you're like the... Yeah, it's to be moved with your, in your gut. So uh, it is a word that actually literally means your bowels are distressed. In, in this, no, that's, yeah, that probably, not in the way we mean that, right? Um, <laughs> but meaning that this was the seat of compassion, of uh, kindness, of mercy in the, in the Greek understanding of the person, which is actually pretty great, right? Because it turns out bowels really are a seat of feeling, as many of us know. Um, so what are the other verbs that you find here? What are some other verbs? Uh, 
bandaged, tens, plays. Oh, placed. Yeah, where does he place him? Uh, on his donkey. So he puts him on his donkey, right? What else? What are other verbs? What is it? He took care of him. What else does he do? <laughs> so if you notice, if you start to list all the verbs here, they get really long. He gives the man, he gives money to the innkeeper, right? So he gets his hands, his whole body, his money is all involved in now trying to take care of this man. And if you contrast the verbs, you can see that there's this big difference. Because when everyone else sees, they're not moved. Well, they are moved. Where do they move? <laughs> Yes, they move away. They move to the other side. What is different about the Samaritan is his movement, his response to what's happened to the man is actually to go near him. That is, in one sense, I would argue, that's, that's part of what Jesus is trying to highlight about the Samaritan here. He sees what we all see, but he moves differently. His response to what he sees is different. It's a question in this parable whether the Levite and the priest might be choosing not to go near this man. Why? Some of the theory. Why, Naomi? Well, I used to judge those two people a lot, um, but something I thought about is if the reason they're moving away is because of purity and their profession, their vocation is to be pure for their community. Because it's not just like they go sacrifice for themselves, they're doing it on behalf of all of the people in their community. Then it's not them like turning up their nose, but feeling like they're doing the right thing or the more practical thing. Yeah, so, you know, maybe not their ministry, right? Their ministry is to remain pure, which blood would make them impure. If he's dead, that would make them really unpure, meaning they would have to go through longer periods of um, ritual cleansing. Um, now, interestingly, the way Jesus tells the parable, uh, potentially they're moving from Jerusalem to Jericho, which means they're probably coming from sacrificing away. I mean, that's potentially some of Jesus is really laying it on thick here. But this idea of purity actually may be more like us than we want to think. Meaning that we think of this culture as a culture that's really into things like purity and impurity. We've kind of moved beyond that. But part of, I think, what Jesus is reminding us about here is that it's very clear that the impurities of the Samaritan are ideological, political, theological, right? He's wrong. He's even wrong about his own story, about who or God is, in some significant ways. He's even from people who, within the Gospel of Luke at this point, are kind of screwing up around Jesus. So... He doesn't get a lot right, but what he gets right is those verbs. He sees, and for whatever else he thinks about, or whoever else he thinks about God, that response in his gut 
moves him to enact compassion. And a compassion that, interestingly, right, when he does all these things, he places the man on the donkey, takes him to an inn, takes wages, pays for him. Where's the end of the story? How does the story end for the Samaritan? More promises, an open-ended promise to make sure that he'd see this through to the end. Now, what was the beginning question? What's the beginning question? Who is my neighbor? Is that ever answered in the parable? Mm. Jesus asks, he tells this lovely story, and then at the very end, he says to the lawyer, now... Who is the neighbor? Wait a second. Who is the neighbor? Not... Is that what he says? Who... Sorry, Pat. Which of these three was a neighbor to the man? Right? That's a different question than who is my neighbor. This story is sometimes understood as if the point of the story is to say everybody's my neighbor. Everybody's my neighbor. I can just fall upon this person and they're my neighbor, right? But Jesus says, no, the important part of the story is who is the neighbor? Are you? Are you a neighbor? Think about the questions that I talked about in terms of ethics. What's the status of a woman who's thinking about getting an abortion? What's the status of a person who can't remember who they are anymore? Are they really a person? Are they really a neighbor I need to love? Jesus turns that question on its head and says, you know what? Don't worry so much about their status. The question is, are you being a neighbor? Are you enacting what is the characteristic, he says? When, when the, oh, here you got to love this, right? The lawyer has to answer the question, right? What does he say? The person who showed mercy or compassion. He can't even say Samaritan. You notice that, right? He doesn't say the Samaritan. He doesn't say, and here's the, one of the questions for you. You can flip to the next one. One of the questions out of this parable, Jesus is obnoxious. Who is your Samaritan? Who's the person that you don't want to get out of your mouth, that they're the person who actually may be someone who is enacting the mercy of God, even though they're theologically, ideologically, politically, whatever, they take all the wrong positions, and you disagree with them? That's who Jesus picks to say, you know what, that might be the person you learn mercy from. Deeply offensive. I have this within my own family. Big surprise, right? I have a sibling who, at my graduation from college, disappeared for a couple hours. And we were like, where did he go? He was out picking someone up off the street, literally doing the Good Samaritan, obnoxiously, in Spanish, because he's bilingual. Now, what you have to know about my sibling is that in virtually every way, theologically, we stand on opposite points. He would not attend my graduation from Fuller because I'm a woman, because I wanted to teach the Bible, 
Because I was at an institution he considered apostate. Now, interestingly, one of my other siblings considers Fuller really liberal, right? That's a whole other story. This is the guy who also keeps money in his pocket. My brother is, I think, deeply wrong. And when we talk politics, even when we talk immigration policy, this one really gets me, right? Oh, my land, right? We are on different planets. But who regularly goes and crosses the border with a whole van full of clothes because they have a brother, sister church south of the border? In practical terms, my brother and I completely disagree. But he's the one who's loading up his car and taking things down to people, speaking to them in fluent Spanish and caring for them, even though theologically, politically, ideologically, we completely disagree. But I generally, that's not me. I'm teaching people about that. I'm making statements about that. I'm theologically, ideologically, politically pure and secure. My brother is consistently one of my Samaritans because I have no doubt that because of the way he has trained himself to be, in this way, my brother says, it, is not, it does not depend on who this other person is. God has called me to be merciful. And on that, he stands. It is obnoxious. <laughs> he keeps money in his pocket because, and he prays when he was traveling back and forth to Alameda County. He would, he would have homeless people all the time coming up and asking him for money. And he said, you know what? This is really irritating. He talked to God about it. He was like, I'm totally irritated about this. But he said, what I realized was my money isn't mine. So he would put money in his pocket every day and he'd say, God, you know what? You need to bring the right person to me. And whoever asks me for money, I am to give it. Because it isn't mine, it's yours. And I thought, crap. That's a really enacted way. Now, if you were to ask him about the policies around why they're homeless, oh my gosh, he'd be concerned. He would not fit with my, my theological convictions about these things, right? So who is that person, maybe in your own life or on social media, who may irritate the hee-haw out of you? Because they're so wrong. But actually, maybe someone who has the kind of mercy that we need to enact and not know about, not preach about, but to say, you're someone now who's a model of faithfulness for me. At least be open to that. The other part, though, that translates, I think, into so much of my life and my discipline is that asking the question, not who is my neighbor, not what is this person's status, not unlike uh, part of what the IRC does, right? We're not making judgments about people's status. We are saying, how are we neighbors to people who are seeking to regularize their status? How can we be neighbors to people who are facing these kinds of challenges? In my life, understanding this as what does it mean to be a neighbor means I don't get to parse to whom I show God's mercy. 
The lawyer looks like it's obnoxious turd sometimes when we read this story. But in reality, I can think of this even in my own life currently, where I'm trying to figure out how to deal with people that I don't like very much or even who have hurt me. And I would like them to understand how wrong they have been. And one of the things about this parable is, actually, Aaron, your task is to show mercy. You are to be a neighbor. That is how you gain eternal life. That's how you become friends with a God who gives eternal life. And much of our society, right or left, evangelical, progressive, we struggle to take this parable into our hearts to say, what does it mean to be a neighbor and not worry so much about the status of all those other people or whether this person in my classroom or at work deserves my mercy because I may consider them merciless in their political, ideological, moral views. And Jesus says, no. What is at the heart of what God requires of us, we say at Mountainside? Do justice and what? Love mercy. Notice that Mountainside says we're going to love mercy. We're going to learn to become people who, in acting those things, we love it. We dig on it. It's like what we feed on. Do you notice how odd that is? It's not just do mercy. Keep the rules about mercy. It's that you learn to love it. And it seems to me this kind of Samaritan dude is someone who says, I've learned to love being merciful. So much so, I don't need to have an end point to what it is. I love doing mercy. I love enacting mercy. I enjoy it. Money, guys. So as we leave today, uh, I want you to take a moment to, as the kids come in, reflect. To whom are you called to be a neighbor? Regardless of what you may think about that person or those people, what does it mean to choose a bunch of verbs? So as the kids come in, um, for those of us that aren't watching out for them or waving to them, because uh, we're trying to get them to come to us, reflect just for a moment on those two questions. Let's pray quickly before uh, the rest of the orange comes in. Lord, we ask that you would help us to love mercy. To be neighbors. 
and to learn to so enjoy neighborliness that the status of the neighbor, of what we think of them, of what they think of us, isn't really the point. Thank you, too, that you are a God who has extended mercy to each of us. And thank you that that mercy can flow through us to your world with abundance and with abandon. So help each of us today as individuals, but also as families, as a church body, to see and to be moved whatever that movement and wherever that movement of compassion takes us. Show mercy to us that people might see us and see your mercy. Amen.